Welcome to Building Leaders, everyone, the show about the creative geniuses that are building our world. My name is Angelus Nicolau. I'm the director at Sector and your host. With us, as always, Michal Solomontos, our vice president. We love talking to the superstars of the construction industry and sharing their stories with you on this show. If you have anyone that you'd like us to interview, please feel free to share their contact details with us at info at sector.build. Again, that's info at sector.build. Thanks, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, yeah, I'm Paul Mullett. I'm Group Engineering and Technology Director at Robert Byrd Group. Excellent. So, Paul, you're a civil engineer by trade. Is that something you always wanted to do? Did you always want to get into civil engineering? Uh, did you know from a young age or was it just something that came up? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I studied civil engineering. I did a civil engineering degree um, and I'm a chartered civil engineer. Um, my career has been a bit broader than that, and, and, but I guess the, the interest goes, goes way back. My, uh, my, my father was an electrical engineer. He worked in the Navy as an avionics fitter, and he was always taking stuff apart, um, and I was fascinated by that. My, my grandfather, uh, he was a carpenter, um, and he worked for British Hovercraft uh, on, on projects such as the Mountbatten class, which is the, the hovercraft that used to cross the channel in the UK. Um, and, and he had a real attention for detail. He was an absolute expert at what he did. So I guess, guess engineering and making stuff has always been in the family. Yeah. But I, I think, I think my particular trajectory has always been influenced by uh, an in, an interest in kind of science fiction and uh, and the future. Huh. And uh, my, my my favorite book when I was a kid was a book called The Osborne Book of the Future. Um, and it's a huh. bit of a classic, actually, uh, if you look it up. Yeah. And it contained all these incredible pictures of what the future might be like. And I, I used to spend hours looking over this book. So, yes, it's, it, it's a, an engineering trajectory, but one that's always been kind of uh, influenced by those uh, ideas of wonder and what we can achieve. What fascinated you, if you remember something from, um, from the book, what fascinated you about it? You know, it happens very often where, you know, we read a book and you just get lost in the lines of the book and you dream that you're in a particular place in time. Do you remember any particular part of that that, you know, fascinated you in that way? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the book covered... Um a whole broad range of things for the future of cities and space travel and all these sorts of things. Uh, and looking back now, the things that reflected on or, or look forward to the, uh, the, the future of, of everyday life, I guess, were really are interesting now. But if I'm honest, at the time, it was the more fantastical stuff that, that inspired me. It was you know, the, the spacecraft and the robotics and the traveling to other, other galaxies and these sorts of things, which, of course, still haven't really come to pass. But uh, yeah. I, I guess that's where the inspiration came from. That's amazing. It's kind of funny. I, I sort of had the same fascination about electronics in the future growing up. And then I also ended up in the construction industry. Did you spend a lot of time with your grandfather, who was a carpenter? And as you described, uh, you know, a perfectionist in that sense? Uh, well, unfortunately not. not. Not a lot of time. Um, we, we lived in different places in, in the United Kingdom. Um, but mm. we would visit them once or twice a year. And he certainly had a lasting memory, both him as a person, but the, the things that he made. So I'd walk into their house 
and he would have constructed a beautiful, beautiful banister or a new front door. And I always was always amazed, you know, at, at the excellence in craftsmanship that had gone into that. And I must have been very young, but he he did at one time take me down to the British Hovercraft where the site was down in East Cowes on the Isle of Wight. It's quite a famous yeah. building, actually. It's got a big Union Jack on the front of it. It's still there. Took me down there and my brother, and he took us through one of the hovercrafts under construction. Of course, wouldn't be allowed now, health and safety and all that. But, um, <laughs> that, that, but yeah, but it's, it, it's a very... It is a very distant memory, but it has stuck with me, uh, seeing something under construction that he was a part of. Um, yeah. it's, it's definitely stayed with me. That's amazing. You know, it, it's so interesting to see. For some reason, civil engineers in particular seem to have a very special reason why they went into that profession. It's never, you know, I always wanted to be civil, a civil engineer. You know, you go to any high school, any school, you ask a kid, you know, what does an architect do? What does a, um, what does a firefighter do? What does a doctor do? They know what all these professions do. What does a civil engineer do? They have no idea. So, you know, there's, <laughs> there's always <laughs> some interesting story there. And it, it's so great to hear, you know, about, about your grandfather uh, and the things that he built. So, once you uh, graduated from uh, university, you went to Ramble, uh, although I see it's called Gifford here from your LinkedIn profile. Was that a company that you know, went through a merger at the time or was bought off by another company? Yes, so Gifford was, um, it was acquired by Ramble and that was shortly after I left actually. So my, my experience with the company was 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 through working for Gifford, which at that time yeah. was, um, was a small to medium, I guess medium-sized, multidisciplinary UK consultant. Um, mm. When I joined, it was probably about 300 strong, and by the time I left, maybe it was 1,000. Oh. Um, but yeah, I, I went there directly after graduation. And you started off as a, you know, a, just a good old structure engineer or did you have any project management site engineering position well the first few years of my career uh, I, I guess the first couple of years were quite normal in that i was a graduate doing a bit of rotation around the business so i worked in the marine department i worked in the bridges department um, and then i ended up settling in a department called engineering studies and it was a department where they would kind of take on the odd jobs so they would uh, do bridge assessments and inspections, and they would do uh, at a team doing advanced analysis of existing structures. It was all the bits and pieces of work that required slightly specialist skills, which was actually I found much more interesting than designing stuff. Yeah, um, and that led me to work within what what we call the engineering analysis team there, and there was only probably three or four of us led by a gentleman called Carl Brooks, who was my mentor for many years. And, and we, I spent many years working with them doing advanced computer analysis, um, so simulations of buildings, bridges, engineering structures in general, whatever it may be, and really pushing what computers were doing at that stage. If you look at what the rest of the business was doing in terms of computing at that point, it was really quite rudimentary. But they had, they had VAX and Unix machines and doing coding, um, we were doing nonlinear analysis, uh, which at that time was really pushing things a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Was technology at that time, what was it mostly centered around? Was it mostly centered around, you know, better design or scheduling or project management? I, I, I guess technology in that sense had really found its way, had really permeated into general engineering in that sense. I mean, the, the, there were PCs around the office. People were obviously doing CAD at that point in time. It was probably shortly after. I joined probably shortly after the transition from uh, drawing boards to, to CAD. Uh, still in process. So there, there was some rudimentary structural analysis software that was running on, you know, on DOS or in early versions of Windows. So the, the boundaries of technology were really being pushed by what we were doing in that team at the time. And we were able to approach it in a very free uh, and bespoke fashion. So we had different tools we could draw on. We, we would write code, uh, we would write scripts and software to solve the problems that we had in front of us. We were doing 3D modeling as well, which at that time was, wasn't really heard of more widely yeah. in the industry, but we, we, we were doing it to construct models of things that we needed to analyze. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I'm wondering, what was the motivation at the time? You know, it sounds like, obviously, it was a 300-person company, which is not small, but, you know, you, you had a pretty, bit of a different role as an analyst uh, versus, you know, just a, a structural engineer. So I'm assuming you had an open door, you had a, a way to talk with upper management or listen to their conversations. Um, did you ever get to listen in into what, what their motivation was behind making sure they do use the latest technology uh, at the time? Because, and I'm asking yes. because, you know, it's not so straightforward as it is today. It's not, oh, you know, everyone's digitized, let's digitize. You know, at the time, you had to be thinking different. You know, you had to be believing in a different way of engineering than everyone else. Yes, yes. I think it, it was a specialist team, but because of the size of the business, the capabilities of the team were quite well known and people would come to us internally when they, you know, when they had a problem that they couldn't fix or something they couldn't do by hand, they would come to us to help them solve it. And yeah, I mean, I was quite junior to begin with, but as I obviously progressed uh, in terms of seniority, you would start to engage with the leadership around the business to build awareness of what was possible uh, and understand their problems better too. So it was a two-way thing. It was about them understanding the, the technology that was available and us understanding the problems that they needed to be, you know, the problems that needed to be solved. And I, I stayed with that team for a, a long time. In, in fact, late, later in my career, I went back to that team and I was, I was kind of leading that team on a day-to-day -day basis. And my, my job at that point was to provide that interface between the capabilities of the team and the teams elsewhere in the business that were doing delivery. But what, what, what was interesting is I, I stayed with that team for many years, but there came a point where I realized that I needed to understand the industry better and I needed to understand design better. And, and I actually, it was a very hard decision for me, but I actually stuck my hand up to leave the team, to go and work in, in doing design, working, embedding myself into buildings teams to understand how, how things went together and how things were designed. And it was quite a shock actually. Even though I had that experience from being a graduate those many years before, it was quite a shock to see how things were being done. <laughs> so so let, me, let me get this straight a little bit because, you know, you said you enjoyed the new role much more, you know, not doing design. You found it a lot more interesting, you know, being out in the field, having to deal with technology. Um, and then at some point after quite a long time, you know, four or five years, you decide to go back to design, even though you thought 
you didn't like it as much just because you felt that you wanted to get a uh, better perspective of it? Yeah, that's correct. So my, my, my first few years as a graduate, I, I, was, I, I was turning the handle, I was doing design. I, I very quickly specialised because it was something I was interested in, that the business was keen to have people that could follow that path. And I, and I did so, and it was, it was great. It was really enlightening. It opened my mind. It, it exposed me to new technology, and I, I developed some fantastic skills. But I found myself becoming more and more specialist in, that, in, in one particular area, and, and not really understanding how the business worked, how the industry worked, and how the, all the rest of the people in the business undertook design and did engineering. And, and that was the point I realized I was probably in a bit of a dead end at that time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, at that point, I, I stuck my hand up and said, I, I, I want to go out, I want to embed myself in these teams, and I want to do some design work. Paul, did you have anyone tell you at the time, you know, you're taking a step back or, you know, why would you do that? Stay here. You know, you're in a different trajectory now. Did you have any of that? Not really. No. Um, there were a few eyebrows raised. Uh, <laughs> I think people had, I think people had assumed I would probably stay in that team and continue to advance in that team. And that there were a few eyebrows raised and it was a little bit scary actually, because it, it actually coincided with a job opportunity in Dubai and, and the, the manager of the, the design manager of the post-tension design team was, was leaving and they needed someone to take that job on. And you know, I, I didn't have experience of doing post-tension design. Um, I understood engineering very well. I understood the theories and I've been managing a, a team for a while. And I stuck my hand up for this role and thought that would really push my boundaries a little bit. Mm. And, and they accepted me, which, which scared me a little bit. But So I, I came out to Dubai to lead a post-tension design team out here, having no prior experience of post-tensioning, but learned very quickly, had a great team around me and learned an awful lot. And then was able to take my, uh, my analytical and more fundamental understanding of engineering and use it to help the, the team that I'd been brought in to lead to. So how did that happen? You know, you're, you're at Gifford for 15 years? Yeah, in total, yeah. 10, 15 years, and then... You know, you're in the UK, you're, you're British, right? Your background is, you're from yeah. the UK. Um, so you're, you know, born and raised there. You studied there, you worked there for, you know, a long time. You know, you're, you're advancing in your career. It's going great. And then uh, an opportunity comes for, for Dubai. Is that something you looked into or was it, you know, you worked on one of the projects in Dubai? How did that, how did that happen? Oh, well, it, it, was, it was an internal advertisement. So it was, it was still with Gifford at that time. And it was, it was you know, it's just one of these mail shots that goes around the business. They were looking for someone to fill this role. And actually, I remember, I remember, ta- I remember seeing it, dismissing it <laughs> for quite some time. <laughs> and then reflecting on it a second time and just having one of those off-the-cuff conversations with my wife where I said, how would you fancy going to Dubai? Uh, there's this job. I'm not, I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can do this job, but it sounds interesting. And she was actually the one that said, yeah, do it. You can do it. Wow. Uh, so I did. <laughs> wow. It's funny. Everyone we've talked to, you know, that, that has moved to, to Dubai at some point, their wife had the final say. <laughs> or the initial say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, no, she, she, uh, she, was, she was the one that, that really made me believe I could do it. Um, and uh, was, was, she was keen to come too. She was keen to leave her job and come here too. 
And if you don't mind just asking, where, where did your wife work in the UK? And then, you know, what did she do when she came to Dubai? Did she find a job there and, or, or did she, you know, dedicate the life to the family? And, uh, uh, well, at, at that time, you know, at that time we didn't have kids. Um, so she was, she was working full time as a nursery school teacher in the UK. Oh, wow. And when, and when we came here, she was, she was quite easily able to pick up a, a nursery school teacher job, which she did for a few years until we had kids. Yeah. For sure. That's great. Well, it's great to have a nursery school teacher, especially if you want to have kids one day. <laughs> so far. Yeah. yeah. You don't have that part to worry about. Um, so, okay, great. So you go to Dubai uh, with Gifford in a new role. So new country, new role, obviously, you have the family part to, to deal with. It's always not the easiest to move everything, move to a new country. And you have to deal with a new role, new team, and something that you're, you're unsure about. How was that experience for you? Oh, it was tough, actually. It was tough. Um, I mean, it was a new, new area for me, uh, post-tension design. And, and the team here were very experienced at doing it. They were turning these designs out really fast. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I came in as the manager, as the newbie. And didn't really know much about it to be honest but they were really good and they they helped me get me up to speed and i was able to help them organize themselves and help them with some technical errors but the thing i think that was the biggest shock was the, the pressure the the workload and the pressure and the demands of working here in the middle east um, mm. it was something totally alien to me having been sat in my cushy office in new forest in southampton <laughs> in a small little team uh, it was a different world we were attending meetings every day the time frames were ridiculous the clients were demanding things were changing all the time budgets were really really tight yeah it was it was tough it sounds like you're a tough guy though because you're still there <laughs> <laughs> what are your hobbies like are you into sports uh, reading books uh, well, at that time, I, I was. I mean, we, we, before we left to Dubai, we were doing quite a lot of sports. It was just my wife and myself. Uh, you know, we were doing running, we were doing taekwondo, we were playing tennis, cycling, oh, cool. these sorts of things. When we came out here, um, we carried on, you know, the, the, the running and the taekwondo as best we could. And then when the kids came along, it kind of all, it all stopped, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 the kids became the hobby, right? So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's already tough. You know, you, you already have to put um, extra hours. But I'm curious, is it actually true? Is it more hours working in the same company in the UAE versus the UK? Is work-life balance not as good as it is in the UK, even though it's the same company? Uh, I th well, I, I can only reflect on, on those times where I, I, I've worked for both for the same company in both locations. And I yeah. think I think on balance, the demands were probably higher on the, on the guys out here. I mean, I, I worked in the head office, the head office for Gifford at that time, and I think it's still an office with Ramble now. Head office at that time for Gifford was, you know, old farmhouse in the New Forest. Um, it was a beautiful place to work, surrounded by fields. Uh, you know, you could, you could have a nice lazy lunchtime. I mean, we worked hard, but it was lovely surroundings. It was much more calm. It was much more relaxed. The, 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 the stresses were less. And here it really was. It was work. Work, was the, work took up most of your time. Um, and you're always on the phone. You're always in demand. Uh, and there were more hours to be done. Yeah. What kept you there, Paul? Uh, what kept you to, to the UAE? 
Well, actually, there's a little story to be told there because it, it, when the GFC came 2008, by the time we hit 2009, uh, Gifford took me back to the UK. Mm. And I went back into the, uh, was then called the Advanced Engineering Group. And it was quite a promising role at that time. I was quite excited about what the future might hold. But actually, I found, I found switching back quite difficult. And strangely enough, you get used to the pace. You get used to the pressure of working out here. And, and I certainly found when I went back, I don't know, it felt like the momentum had, had gone a little bit. It, it's a strange thing to try and communicate, actually. And, and I'm sure other expats may have similar stories, but you, you, you do miss it. You do miss yeah. it. And I guess when I was here, I wouldn't have left, by the way, if, if, I, had, if I had a choice at that time, 2009, um, I probably would have wanted to stay. Yeah. Um, you know? That's interesting. You know, I, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, especially at the time when I grew up, it was considerably tougher to live there than well, obviously now and the UAE. You know, it's pretty strict community. You're there for work. But, you know, for me, it was, the, you know, the place I grew up in. And when the, I, I remember, you know, when the plane landed 2014, uh, when, when I went back after, you know, about a dozen years of not being in Saudi, it really felt like I, I arrived home. So totally get what you're saying and what you're talking about here. And it, it is quite tough to communicate because people, you know, humans are creatures of habit and we like our habits and we like our comfort zones. And, you know, and, and especially if it's described and as a tougher period uh, in your life, uh, people will wonder why. Uh, yeah. But um, I assume if you're ambitious, it has something to do with that. And yeah, I was just going to add one thing there. I think I think when you aspire to be an engineer, you, you aspire to create the world around you and help shape it and, and somehow play your part. And I think there's nowhere else, perhaps, where that's more uh, it's, it's more apparent to you as an engineer than than in Dubai or, or well, other cities in the Middle East as well now, but certainly in Dubai at that time. I mean, it was the city was literally growing around you. And to know that you were being part of that was quite exciting. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Dubai is quite the story. And then the opportunity came along with Robert Bird, obviously a well-known company, larger company than the one you were at. Did you go in your, and, and your current company, uh, did you start off in more of a managerial role when you started there, or was it a, a bit more of the same as it was at, at Gifford? Well, yeah, at Gifford at that time, before I, just before I left, I was kind of doing a day-to-day -day management of that, that advanced engineering group at the time. Uh, and that was perhaps six or seven people at that time. We really wanted to come back to the Middle East for the reasons we just, just talked about, really. I kind of missed yeah. the place, I missed the buzz of being here. And, and at that time, I think Gifford was going through a, a bit of a difficult period in its in its history. And obviously, shortly shortly afterwards, it was acquired by Ramwell. When I came out to Dubai with Robert Bird, the office at that time, we had about 15 people. We had the, uh, the MD, which is uh, Hassan, who again, I worked with for many years. But I, I was brought in as one of the associates. We had, I think, at that time, probably two associates. But after, you know, things move quite quickly in an office that size, and uh, I was quite soon made the GM in that office. 
um, and then I was uh, I was responsible for the, the, the day-to-day management of what was going on in that office. Wow. And, and I, learned, I learned an awful lot very, very quickly. Working in a small office with, with a broader remit than what we had at, at Gifford, um, Robert Bird, we, we were picking up all different kinds of work, uh, design work, construction engineering work, temporary works, working for developers, architects, and and contractors alike. You know, I, I, I learned, again, going into these roles, um, you learn a lot from the people around you as well. Yeah. And, and then, of course, I started to learn about the, the management aspects of, of, of managing an office um, of that size and, and teams. Learned, learned from Hassan, who was my mentor through that period, uh, you know, around commercial management, winning work and bidding and all of those sorts of things that I hadn't really been exposed to prior to that. So, again, that was another another aspects of growth you know obviously robert bird is a larger company but it sounds a bit like at least your team in dubai was in a bit of a startup mode right you had the goal of growing the team you're describing doing a little bit of everything and i'm assuming you know more of your colleagues were also doing that uh, was that a bit of the case there uh, were you uh, building out robert bird middle east uh, yeah, there was. You're right. They'd been here a few years before I joined, but as I said, it was only about sort of probably 12 to 15 staff members at that time, and and we grew it over a period of a few years up to about 50. So we 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 were taking on all sorts of work, and everyone was doing everything really, and that, that's how you are in that mode. Um, you have to be, you have to be flexible and adaptable in order to to grow and um, build your client base is what we were doing. How do you do that, Paul? How, how do you grow a team from 15 to 50, you know, in four years? Do, do you focus on a niche? Do you, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, and that's where I think I, I, I learned a lot from those people around me. Sam was a great mentor in that respect in terms of, of work winning and bidding and client relationships. Um, they were things I learned a lot about when I was there. You know, it, it, it's all about delivery. It's about seeing things from the client's perspective. It's about not saying no in a lot of cases. And it's really, it does all come back to delivery. It's about delivering on your promises. And, and when you do that, you know, clients respect you and value what you can bring. It, it was helped by Robert Bird Group as a, as a business and a company and, and the, the teams we had available to us elsewhere in the group. You know, some, some real specialist expertise that sat behind us. And some real niche areas of work, you know, for example, construction engineering. They've worked on you know, complex roof erection methodologies, for example, erection stress analysis, um, complex temporary works designs. These sorts of things that traditional uh, consultants uh, perhaps put to one side or, or leave behind and let others take care of. And um, that's where we were able to step in and, and support and help contractors in, in their delivery. And I think that's where the niche was, and that's where the business has seen a lot of growth. And it still continues today. I mean, the, the office here, most of its work these days is in construction engineering. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it obviously helps, you know, when you have a, when you have a big name, that would be the main difference between what your team was doing in, you know, as a typical startup, but is when, when you know, when you have a big name backing you up and you say, you know, I'm, we're part of Robert Bird, but taking that aside, you still have to go through all the workflows that a startup has to go through and all the motions that a startup has to go through with the ups and downs and whatnot to make that work. And after doing that, uh, I'm seeing here that 
you moved as the uh, director of, of engineering and technology for, for the MENA region uh, before your current lo- role as the group engineering and technology director. Can you explain to us what this role consists of? Sure. So strategically as a business, Robert Bird Group, it approaches it for, in terms of pillar structure. Um, and engineering technology is one of, one of the internal pillars on how we strategize the business. And that, that's, that's done at group level, but also, um, also at a regional level. So at that point in time, the, the regional business had got to about 50 or so strong. It was restructured at that point um, to strengthen the, the leadership and bring other people through. And I, I took on the regional representation of that engineering technology pillar. So I was responsible for trying to drive strategy for engineering technology in the Middle East in, into the business here, which I was pleased to do. It, 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 I was at that point in time, to be honest, um, you know, there's, there's, so much, there's so much commercial management and P&Ls and other things you can you can do. And for, for me, I'd I've kind of had enough of that, and I wanted to. I wanted to get back to my roots. Focus on, focus on engineering first and foremost, but also start to look again at technology and what technology could offer to uh, to our business and to the industry. Yeah, must have been quite different. You know, there was a bit of a obviously a bit of a gap there between about ten years, let's say about a decade from when you first started dealing with construction technology and then when you got back into that role what would you say were the main differences you know in the early 2000s and now is it better now is it easier now what's your take on that well i guess one of my reflections was and perhaps this is a little bit cynical um, not a lot of changed but that's perhaps a, uh, an unfair perspective because what we were doing early in my career working in a specialist team is we were doing things that nobody else in the business or industry were doing. Yeah, so, so we were doing 3D modeling, 3D geometrical modeling. We were doing uh, advanced finite element analysis. We were doing coding and scripting. We were doing all of those things at that time. And, and most people in the broader industry weren't. So move forward a decade or so, you've now got an industry that's starting to say, hey, you know, we should be using digital tools more. We should be looking at things in 3D. We should be doing some more scripting and coding. We should have some, some uh, automated workflows. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. We, we, were, doing that, <laughs> we were doing that 10, 15 years ago. But the, the, the key thing that changed in, through those years was accessibility. So, you know, if you wanted to do 3D modeling back in late 90s, early 2000s, you had to be an expert in a complicated 3D modeling software package that cost an awful lot of money to purchase. If you wanted to do coding or automate a workflow, you would have had to have gone and learned to program in Fortran at that time, um, which was crazy. Whereas now, if you wanted to do 3D modeling, well, you just load up Rhino and you, you, you run yourself through a few demos and tutorials and you're away and you're flying. If you want to do some scripting, you want to automate your workflows, well, you learn a bit of Dynamo um, embedded in, in Revit or, or, or Grasshopper uh, in Rhino. And these things are accessible to everyone now. Yeah. They're generally cheap, they're easier to understand, and they work. You know? um, so I think the key, the, the key thing that had no changed excuses. through those years no was, was... Not to use technology now. Yeah, yeah. I think the key thing that changed through that process was, um, was accessibility to technology. Um, 
and of course BIM. It would, it would be unfair to me to not mention BIM um, because where, where we were at that time back in uh, yeah, the late 90s, early 2000s, BIM wasn't really on anyone's um, radar at that time, whereas now it's kind of centric to everything. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, Do you course, think that was silly. part of how you were able to to grow your team at the time? The fact that you were more of a tech forward thinking company. Yeah, I mean, having guys to understand how to use Revit and understand BIM certainly gives you a good platform to work from. Um, so yeah, that, that that is a core skill. Um, having technicians and engineers that understand how to operate in 3D, again, is, is, is a core skill, I think, that, that helps set you up for everything else you want to do. If you don't have those skills in, in your business, then that's certainly the first place, first place to look, right? Yeah. So now you're the group engineering and, and technology director. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, pre-COVID, there was a lot of travel uh, associated with this role? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... That role came about, I'd been pushing the agenda in the Middle East, and at that time I wanted to see more happening at a global level, I wanted to see uh, it approach more strategically as a business, and I could see an opportunity, and, and the threats as well, um, that, that, that you know, um, technology and digitization posed, and I essentially lobbied internally to make that happen, and the business yeah. responded fantastically, um, put, put me in that role, and uh, I never looked back. But um, yeah, lo lots of travel, a lot of uh, getting around the business, talking to people, understanding what's happening in the business, what people are doing, what people's challenges are, and how, how you can help them improve what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Did it speed up your goals? Did COVID speed up some of your tech goals during this period? Oh, oh look, um, I would have to say, I mean, we, we had a really successful year last year. We, we had a clear strategy. We did a lot of skills development and growth of, of awareness across the business at all levels. A lot of grassroots training was done um, and the business got a good return from that. And, and this year we were going to springboard off that and we had, we had great plans. And uh, I've been around the business actually at the beginning of the year in, in, in February um, and early March uh, to kind of roll that out. And then COVID hit. And of course, uh, changed all of that really. Some some of it for the negative. Uh, we had to put a lot of plans on hold uh, for, for, for you know, obvious reasons, really. So the initial reaction was kind of, ah, this is really frustrating. Um, yeah. But actually, uh, we've had to shift our strategy in the last few months. Um, we've been able to observe what's been going on in the business, focus in very specific areas in our business on how to not just ride out the, the COVID crisis, but also you know, uh, get some really powerful lessons learned to help us think about our future. So what COVID has done is it's, it's, it's kind of forced the issue in many respects. Um, yeah. It's made people aware that what they thought perhaps wasn't possible is possible is actually possible if you know if you'd have said you know just early this year if you would have said right we're going to close all the offices and everyone's going to go home 
and we're going to operate this business successfully with everyone at home. You know, you'd have been, you'd have been laughed at. You'd have been laughed out the boardroom. No, no one would, no, no one would have believed you in any business, or hardly any business. But now, of course, you can sit where we are now and say, well, yes, there, yes, there are issues, and we all accept those issues. But generally, you know, businesses of a certain type have been successful. They've remained productive. It's been success, right? So, so we have to take those successes and, and learn and build on them, and use that momentum to help us in the, in the challenges that lie ahead. Because there's, there's there's a lot of challenges ahead. And you mentioned returns, Paul. You said last year it was successful, and the company saw saw good returns. What do these returns look like? Does that mean you're winning more jobs because of your tech efforts, or you were increasing your profit margin on your projects? better safety reg- what do these returns look like uh a, a, a bit of everything i think perhaps leaning more towards internal efficiencies and productivity so you know we we, we pushed quite heavily at the beginning in terms of grassroots training in, in trying to get people to look at their workflows look at the processes and what they were doing and to think about things differently and see if they could automate um and that you know it, it's a little bit finger in the air you, you go around the business and, and you, you you collect feedback as to how things have gone, but um, the general feedback was um, people had saved a lot more time than they'd actually put in. So, so people had to train, they had to spend time learning the tools, they had to spend time developing the scripts, a bit of trial and error involved there and, and, and learning on the job. But the feedback was that it paid off. Once you've got those skills, once you've developed them, they're there to stay. Um, and once you've developed a script to apply on one job, where you can take that script or pieces of it and you can apply it on another job. Or once you've developed a tool, you can then, you can then use it to develop others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, makes yeah. a lot of sense. You know, it's kind of hard to quantify returns in a big sense of the word, right? Because there's things you can measure. You know, you can measure if you're more productive, if you're spending less time on a task, but how can you really measure if your people are happier if it becomes a better environment for the workers to work at, if they're less stressed, if they're more excited to come to work and do some of the things uh, that they were used to doing in more of an archaic way, let's say. Do you ever face internal resistance when you try to implement a new technology or a new technology-related KPI? Uh, yes, yes, but it's, ne- it's, never, um, it's never because people don't believe in it. It's normally because... You're going into businesses, you know, business units that have you know, specific monthly KPIs to hit, and and you know that they're, they're working hard. They're uh, you know the teams are being pushed. They're well-oiled machines. And then you come in and you say that process that you've been doing for the last ten years, I think if you spent a bit of time, you could do that better. Or encouraging people to innovate is encouraging people to be disruptive. And uh, there's a risk with that, right? There's a risk that, that someone will stop doing what they've done successfully. That then removes the certainty of delivery. It creates a risk, a risk of increased time or failure to deliver or whatever it may be. And, and that's always a concern. It's always a concern for team leaders or, or leaders across the business. I really like what I'm hearing because, you know, you're, you're going after people that you will show a... A, a return on you know whatever effort they're doing. So you're doing this process, it's taking this long, you'll be able to do it much faster, uh, you'll be able to hit your targets faster, more efficiently, and then all of a sudden you turn a doubter into a believer and they're they're on your side. And sometimes they turn into your into your biggest advocates as well. 
Mm. Um, um, we, 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 I mean, our strategy for this has been to approach it bottom up and top down. So, you know, we've, we've got buy-in from the very top, from the business, that these are things the business needs to invest in. These are things we need to, uh, we need to be doing to survive as a business. Um, but equally, you know, we've got people at the bottom of the business. We've got the young engineers and graduates and technicians that are desperate to get their hands on these tools. And we're putting the tools in their hands and saying, here, you, know, you go and run riot with these tools um, and see what you can do. And many of them, to their credit, they put in their own time to develop their learning. We, we provide them with the learning platforms to do that, but a lot of them putting in their own time and own efforts. And then they're going back to their managers and their leaders and saying, hey, hey look what I did. This, look at this really cool tool. This has saved me X number of hours. And that then gives their leaders uh, the confidence that, uh, that it works, you know. So I think you have, yeah. to go, you have to hit it from both directions, top down and bottom up. Paul, you're a very successful man. Uh, the way we see it, definitely. I'm sure the, many, the way many people see it in the industry. And we can see a lot of ambition, a lot of hard work going in. You spoke also a couple of times about your mentors. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what does it mean to have a mentor? Do you spend time with them? How do you see that? What was your experience like? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, I guess I've had two key mentors in the course of my career. The first was from being uh, an early graduate working in the uh, engineering analysis team at Gifford. And he was my mentor and boss for many, many years. Uh, and that was Carl, Carl Brooks. I can't really understate how important he was in that role in being a mentor. Yeah, and and same with Hassan, who was he was the MD in 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 the region here, uh, who really uh, helped me understand how business worked in a broader perspective. I, I think this for me opens up a bigger subject around the choices people make in their careers. Something I feel quite strongly about. I mean, I've only worked for two companies in my career, so I've been working for 25 years. The time has flown but I've only worked for two companies in that time. And I feel very strongly, I've been lucky, by the way. I consider myself very lucky too, because I work for two great companies with great people in there. And I, many, many times in my career, I see people make poor choices in terms of their careers. You know, they leave companies because of short-term frustrations or the grass is greener on the other side, or there's a bit more money over there or whatever it may be. And I like to tell people uh, loyalty goes a long way and, and the people, you, you, you also can't be working for good people. Yeah. So if, if you've got a great team you're in, if you like the people, if you've got a good boss, that, that's just worth absolute gold. And, and I've been very, very lucky with both Carl and Hassan and the teams I've worked in. So I, Yeah. So on a practical level, let's say with let's let's say with Hassan on a practical level, does that mean you spend a lot of hours talking to him, asking him questions, listening to him, uh, shadowing him? Is that sort of how that experience was? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just kind of soaking up uh, his knowledge and expertise. Hassan had been in the region longer than me. You know, great business acumen. Uh, he he valued my my technical expertise. But I valued his, his, as well as his technical expertise, his, his business understanding and how the business worked and, and how you speak to clients. So, you know, I would attend meetings with Hassan and obviously soak up that, you know, soak that up 
while I was there. And actually, this is one of the key issues I think we have at the moment going through um, this remote working period and COVID. Uh, yeah. It is training, you, you, you could kind of um, replicate training remotely, but how on earth do you um, replace that experience of shadowing someone, of being in the same room as someone, yeah. being in meetings with them, seeing how they're behaving and how they're responding. That's a great point. That, that's really, really hard. Um, and that's one of the challenges for us, I think, going forward, is how we continue to do that. Do, do you have a mentee, uh, now mentees, people that shadow you? Is that something you encourage? Not, not officially. Uh, I mean, I, have, <laughs> I, I suppose I do. Um, I, I have a, a, a team, quite a small team of, of people around the business who report to me in terms of you know, their engineering technology remits. I'd like to think I've been have some kind of influence in terms of their development. Perhaps more so when I was working in the Middle East in the office here. That, that was a time when I had, a, I had a, a large number of people who were reporting to me and, and, and people would come to me quite often for, for my advice. Um, that's, I mean, it still happens. And, I, and I've, I've tried to continue that. I'm a mentor and a supervising civil engineer with the Institution of Civil Engineers. Mm. Um, so I, I, I do still mentor people officially in that capacity, oh, which nice. is good. I, 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 I like doing that. It's good. Paul, you've seen quite a bit of the industry. You've been in and out of the tech world, the construction tech world in the industry. You started civil engineering out of an ambition to change the world, to see the world different, more advanced, more future-like. Now, it really looks like we're at a turning point for the construction industry. Technology is really start, starting to make strides in it. Industry is, is growing at a really fast pace. It's expected to be the fastest growing industry in the next 10 years. How would you like to see the construction industry 10 years from now? Ooh. Well, I mean, we all, we all know the statistics around um, you know, productivity in, in, in industry compared to others. And, 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 it, and it's disappointing, I, I suppose. Um, but when you look at the paradigms in our industry around how we design and how we build, it's perhaps not surprising. We've used the same methods and technologies for a long, long time on, on ever-increasingly complex projects, and hence why we are where we are. But, but the future is, I would agree, the future is bright. The technology is, is there. The challenges for the industry, I think, actually, at this point in time, are probably not technological. They're more around how the industry is structured. It's quite fractured. And I think what we need to look at is how we can change how we deliver construction, how we can break down some of the barriers, um, how we can allow, I guess, um, more free flow of ideas, more investment, a greater share of, of risk and more reward. These are things that will, I think, allow the technologies that we have to, to blossom and flourish. Otherwise, I think there's a, there's a risk that, that we'll never quite manage to achieve what, what's truly possible. While, while these technologies remain siloed, it, we're never going to quite get there. So yeah. we, we, we need more innovation in the way we deliver and how we collaborate. And you can, you can see it in parts of the industry starting to happen. So you have... Um, you have increased vertical uh, vertical integration of services. You start to see that in some of the um, uh, industrialized construction solutions that are, that are coming into the industry. You've got other initiatives such as Project 13, 
uh, which is the ICE's initiative on procurement, different different methods of procurement, um, which is more of an enterprise system rather than a, a transactional based system. So I think these actually the things we need to push and to focus on in order for the barriers to technology to be brought down. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll really start to reap the rewards. So I guess to, to come back to your question, in 10 years' time, I'd love to see those barriers broken down. I'd love to see um, risk and reward shared. I'd love to see true collaboration in the industry, free flow of ideas, free flow of data. I think that yeah. that's the real key. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We really do hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you think that it delivered value to you, please share it with a friend who will appreciate it as well. Thanks.